0: My son put on uh, a camouflage jacket this morning that my dad bought him, I think my dad, and so he's pretty sure camouflage means invisible, and like he just thinks no one sees him doing anything. This is Philly, kid. Camouflage stands out, not blends in. Uh, all right, well, good afternoon. So. Shay mentioned this earlier, but he and I were both at the Wissanomic service this morning, and it was really good. Uh, it was Luis, Pastor Luis's last day. Um, there were some visitors in from out of town, so it was a little fuller. The worship team did a great job. The worship was really powerful. And uh, I know we were both hoping that we would walk in today, and not to duplicate it, but that there would be something that would be on par with that, and I feel like it was. Um, not, there's no competition or anything like that. Um, but you know, I think, I don't know exactly what the explanation for that would be. I mean, I will say some, it's, it's hard to string two good services together in one day. Most weekends, (laughs) I usually on most weekends go away thinking one was more powerful than the other and it kind of alternates. But, uh, I don't know today, everybody really went for it at both places. So that's good. You know, we're at the beginning of a new season. So you want to start that off with praise. Um, so great! Really quick before I get into the sermon, if you're visiting us today and you would like to get more information about the church or you'd like maybe a phone call from me, I don't know why you'd like one of those, but we have visitor cards down at the uh, the offering box, which is well, the offering box which is in the back of the sanctuary near the sound booth, right behind Maribel. There, Maribel, can you raise your hand? Right behind that beautiful young lady is uh, our offering box. You can fill one of these cards out. Find the cards right there. Just drop it in put your information uh, and we'll get a hold of you if you would like to be gotten a hold of. All right. Uh, Could I get one person to stand up and pray for the sermon? Nice and loudly because you won't have a microphone. Rich, right? Go ahead, Rich. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Rich. All right. Now, two weeks ago was October 4th. It was our sixth anniversary, and during the the sermon portion of the service, I retold the history of our church, which is six years old. Does any of you remember that? Raise your hand real quick if you remember that. Okay. I was hoping at least like half of you would remember that. So, two weeks ago, I told the story of our church from idea phase to... Early days to the kind of like meet, like years two, three, four, which were a strong time for us, and even the last 18 months, which is since we took 30 people from Truvine, Wissanoming and put them over here at Truvine Tyson Ave, and I think many of you know much of the story uh, from there on out. But I told that story. You guys remember that? Okay, good. And then at the end, I said, today we are putting year six in the books and starting year seven. Do you guys remember that? I remember that. Okay. And I said that year seven would be a... Shoot, it's up there. All right, open book test. Year seven would be a year of... Fullness. okay. Now, we are already two weeks in to year seven. We only got 50 weeks left. Uh, So we've started this process. We're about 4% in. We have 96% of our year left. But year seven, I think, is a year of fullness. Now, I'm not going to talk about that every single week, but I don't want to just say it once and forget about it either. So we're going to revisit this occasionally, just this idea. Now, I want to explain a little bit what I mean by year of fullness. So, Nate, if you can go to the next slide. When I say year of fullness, I kind of have this picture in my mind, all right, that our church is kind of like these five glasses, and each part of our church's life, is full, but some are fuller than others, and that there are some areas that we're really strong and there are also some areas where we're very weak, and that by the end of the next year, by the time we wrap up year seven and start year eight, I would like to see all of the areas of our church fuller then than they are today. I would like to see us as a church more mature in a year from now than we are today. I'm not saying we're immature or, or bad or shallow, but why not move forward rather than backwards, right? Why not aspire to be more mature a year from now than we are today? Now, if our corporate body is going to be more mature a year from now than we are today, then that means we as individuals need to grow in our own maturity of discipleship, depth of discipleship. Our love for Jesus and our love for other people. It, you got that? So if I picture our church as like a, a collection of glasses, think you know, 150 to 200 glasses, I want every one of them to be fuller in, in 50 weeks than it was two weeks ago. You got that? Great. So this is kind of the picture that I have in mind when I talk about year fullness, that, that areas of weakness, areas of blind spots would no longer be weaknesses or blind spots uh, a year from now. So, as I have been talking to people in our church about that, I think I've picked up on a little theme that's been running uh, as, I've, as I've been speaking to people. And the, I think the theme, or how we, how we get to this, is quality, not quantity. Now, I will say, as a pastor... I know the attendance immediately after the service, and I know the attendance every week, and I know if we're growing or shrinking, and in fact, not knowing the attendance is often a sign of a church that's in decline. So believe me, I love numbers, I'm just a tad bit obsessed with them. But uh, I don't think that the assignment right now is try to gather a bunch of random people into a room, I think that what I'm hearing God say through people in our church is that he would like to increase the quality of our discipleship and then increase the quantity of disciples. But to get the foundation established first so that we're building on something that's sturdy rather than let's just get to see how many people we can get into a room. You got that so far? Okay, good. Sounds like you got it. Okay, well, I'm just going to close in prayer then. I thought this would take longer. (laughs) So um, today, specifically, I want to talk about the quality of discipleship or the type of discipleship or disciples that Jesus was creating or building during his three and a half years of ministry. And When I look at Jesus' three and a half years of ministry, it just blows my mind because in three and a half years, he took a bunch of ignorant fishermen, and turned them into the apostles. Right? I mean, we never would have heard of Peter if it hadn't been for Jesus. He would just be some stinky fisherman that no one ever knew about. Now we got him in the stained glass over in the side room over here. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, which are behind all of you, we never would have heard of any of them. They all, their identity for history came from their relationship with Jesus. Who they are and who we know them to be came because of their contact with Jesus. So, in three and a half years, Jesus took a bunch of bums and turned them into the apostles that we've all been naming our kids after for 2,000 years. But at the same time, after three and a half years of doing miracles and pretty wild stuff, there were only about 120 people who who stuck around after Jesus was crucified. I mean, after that, anyone that was there for the show pretty much left. And while Jesus had a profound impact on most of the disciples during his three and a half years, he never could quite figure Judas out, I guess. Not that he couldn't figure Judas out, but Judas... It's not that Jesus had a deficiency, Judas had a deficiency. Judas just was resistant. And so I look at three and a half years and I think, man, you could really accomplish a lot, but also, can you really accomplish a lot? I mean, it really depends on the receptivity of the individual, right? I mean, three and a half years with a receptive person will, t- will really take you far. Three and a half years with a resistant person, man, it's like you've got to drag them kicking and screaming. And you know, I'm too delicate to be dealing with people that kick and scream. Now... So Jesus, in Matthew 10, uh, we, we went through Matthew about a year and a half ago, and we <coughs> saw that in Matthew 10, just he unpacks a ton of stuff about discipleship. Matthew recorded this. So today we're going to be in Matthew 10, verses 24 through 31. I do have it up on the screen. It's not that long, uh, so I'm just going to read it for you. This is Jesus teaching on discipleship. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a slave above his master. It is enough for the disciple that he become like his teacher, and the slave like his master. If they have called the head of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign the members of his household? Next, there we go. Therefore do not fear them, for there is nothing concealed that will not be revealed or hidden that will will not be made known. What I tell you in the darkness, speak in the light, and what you hear whispered in your ear, proclaim upon the housetops. Do not fear those who kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both the soul and the body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a cent? And yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But the very hairs of your head are all numbered, so do not fear, for you are more valuable than many sparrows. Nate, can you back me up one slide? I just want to comb through this uh, line by line really quickly. Uh, so a disciple is not above his teacher, nor a slave above his master. So let's get some terminology down right now. Okay, in this, fra- in this passage, Jesus is the teacher, okay? We're not talking about in the church setting. Jesus is the teacher here. So when we say G- teacher, think Jesus. Jesus is also the master. So what does that make us? We are the disciples or the slaves, right? Uh, so that's the setting and that's the terminology. Now, today, disciple and teacher, we use this phrase teacher, but we don't really use the term disciple outside of the church that much, right? Now, we do have these, this, this mentor idea. It's in culture. We have mentors, right? And then there's this word, this is just a pet peeve, mentee, the person who's being mentored, we call it the mentee, that's not a word. Mentee uh, is like manatee or something. Okay, the person who's being mentored is called a protege. So a mentor and a protege would be similar to what this disciple, uh, teacher-disciple relationship would be back then. I do think it's interesting that Jesus uses the slave-master illustration, so you can take that up with him. Of course, slavery at that time was very different from the transatlantic slave trade that most of us are familiar with from our nation's history, Uh, because at this point, the slave and the master could have a beneficial relationship to one another, so it was a little different kind. Uh, In fact, that word slave in Greek could just easily be servant or like a butler. So very different than the dynamics most of us are used to when we think of slavery and how it existed in the United States. So, it is enough for the disciple that he become like his teacher. So, what is the disciple's role? It is to become like the teacher. It's to become like his teacher. The disciple aspires to be like his teacher. So, that's like part, point number one of the quality or type of disciples that Jesus is trying to make, is that they would be like him. Right? that he wants to have disciples that want to be like him. So then that means for us, we have to aspire to be like Jesus. If you want to be a disciple, if you want to be a disciple of Jesus, the first step is you have to want to be like Jesus. If you see Jesus in the Gospels and you think, I'm not interested in that kind of life, then probably Christian discipleship is not for you yet. You You have to read the Gospels and see Jesus and kind of be caught up in who he was and what he was like and say, I want to be like that. And I think every single one of us has that in our lives. Like, we have a person in our life that we, we really would like to be like. I, I want to be like my dad a little bit. You know, he lives out in the middle of the woods, though, and I live in Philadelphia. So, there's a couple things. But, you know, I, I still, as a 34-year-old dude, want to be like my dad. Um there's there are there's a pastor that I really enjoy named Bill Johnson. I want to be a little bit like Bill Johnson. I'm not trying to be him, but I'd like to be like him a little bit. Um, you know a lot of people say I look like the rock i you know I want to look like the rock. I don't understand why that was funny, but all right <clears throat> all right, so The step one of discipleship is you have to aspire to be like the teacher. And in this passage, Jesus is the teacher. Now, even Paul stole that idea. And that was Paul's philosophy of discipleship. He said, follow me as I follow Christ. So Paul had the guts to say, follow me, like be like me. But then he added, as I follow Christ. Paul's Philosophy of discipleship was that. Follow me as I follow Christ. Um, there has to be a human, there has to be something tangible for you to, to, to see discipleship modeled, right? Uh, and so Jesus is our primary example. And then in, in your life, you might have spiritual fathers and spiritual mothers that you can see okay, so what, how does this play out now? Because Jesus didn't have a wife, and Jesus didn't have kids. Neither did Paul, for that matter. So, how do we apply the gospel to family life? And you know, Jesus didn't have a cell phone. Jesus didn't have pornography available all day, every day. Uh, Jesus didn't work where I work. So, how do you see how do you see the kingdom model? Uh, in how do you apply the kingdom in those places? That's where it's helpful to have people that are older than you have gone before you, deeper in the faith, further along in the faith than you to see that stuff modeled how it worked for them, and how they figured it out. But we'll talk about Jesus specifically. I wanted, as a kid, when I was like 10 or 12, my favorite baseball player was Ken Griffey Jr. Does anyone remember Ken Griffey Jr.? Okay, he was really good. He had a couple nicknames, the kid, because his father played professional baseball for the Cincinnati Reds, uh, and Ken Griffey Jr. played for the Seattle Mariners, the Cincinnati Reds. Played half a season for the Chicago White Sox before going back to Seattle. His other nickname was The Natural. And that was because his swing was so smooth. He played baseball, for those of you that have no idea who I'm talking about. He was a baseball player. He, his sw- baseball swing, I'm going to use really basic terms, was so smooth, and he would hit uh, something called a home run. He would hit home runs all the time and in the 90s he would hit 40 or 50 home runs a year which is a lot if you don't know baseball that was a lot and he was on pace to hit the most home runs of anyone in history but he also got injured all the time unfortunately Uh, so he ended up being like only the fifth most or something like that fifth most home runs in history but his swing was so smooth it looked effortless And it looked like he wasn't even trying, and then he would just hit home run after home runner. I saw him hit three home runs in person. I saw him play five times. He hit three home runs during that time. He was so smooth. So, what I would do as a kid, and I still have a bin in my basement or my garage of like 75 Ken Griffey Jr. trading cards. Don't laugh. And as a kid, this is really corny. I would take the cards and I would line them up in the stages of his swing. So I would, I would chronologically place the card so that I could see every step of his... I had like 75 different angles to look at. And I would piece of, and I would practice. And I still have a Ken Griffey Jr. baseball bat that I mostly just about once a month walk through the house in my pajamas when I hear a sound. But, but if I ever have to use it, they're not even going to see it coming. And it's going to be a nice, smooth, across the head. Uh, but but I, I all through I played baseball in high school, little league, and up through high school. I always tried to swing like Ken Griffey Jr. I would practice, I would watch how he swang This is back before YouTube existed, so you couldn't just replay something on your computer. Um, so I had to watch Sports Center to see his highlights, and then wait an hour to watch the same Sports Center again to watch it again. And looked at the cards and the magazines, and I had a I still have a Ken Griffey Jr. Frost and Flakes box. And uh, I would study it because I wanted to be like him. Now, if I studied Jesus that way, and I have, you know, I, I kind of got over the Ken Griffey Jr. thing. If I like looked, so I have four Gospels, right? If I line those four Gospels up, I can look at Jesus from different angles, you know. And if I hear stories from your li- life and the lives of people, saints that have gone, and I read Christian biographies. I can see how Jesus works in specific situations. And I remember I was in college before I really... I was in college, I was probably a Christian for about seven years before I realized that Christianity really is all about Jesus. It took me a while to get to that. And I, I read a book by a guy named Philip Yancey called The Jesus I Never Knew. And I just had the... It just like was a paradigm shift for me. that like, oh, this is really about Jesus. And so I read the Jesus I never knew, and it kind of explained Jesus in a way that I had never really considered him. I went to the, I started reading the Gospels rather than just the Epistles and the Book of Exodus, which I really loved in high school, um, and focused on the person of Jesus, and that changed my discipleship and changed my uh, relationship with him in a deep and profound way. And I began to <coughs> aspire to be more like Jesus, and that again, that is step one of. of high-quality discipleship. You have to want to be like Jesus. Um, let me use this phrase, beholding Jesus. Um, so we don't use the word behold much nowadays, but I sometimes will joke with my kids, i like, behold, dinner is served. They have no idea you know, what I'm saying. Behold is kind of a way like saying, look at this. But in, in the Bible when it, it says, behold God or behold Jesus, it's saying look at God or look at Jesus. Now, obviously, unless your Bible like a picture Bible, you, and even if it is a picture Bible, it's probably not accurate. But we, don't, we can't exactly look at God with our own eyes unless we have some sort of like supernatural experience where He reveals Himself. Mostly it's through Scripture where you see Jesus. But I will say that the Jesus of the Bible is a lot different than the Jesus of the church. Um, You know, even still, so I went from not understanding Jesus was the center, the central character or figure of Christianity to finally understanding that when I was about a sophomore in college. And then I mostly just limited myself to the Gospels. You know, whatever I saw in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But then as I grew, I realized, you know, Jesus is in the Old Testament. He shows up in some pretty sneaky ways sometimes. And then it was only two or three years, probably three or four years ago at this point, where I started reading the book of Revelation differently. And I saw that the, you know, Jesus in the Gospels was pretty friendly. Jesus in Revelation is pretty intense. His eyes burn with fire and his hair is white like wool and his voice sounds like a raging waters and he has a sword coming out of his mouth. And I was like, oh... This is a totally different perspective of Jesus than I ever considered. All of a sudden, it made me feel a lot better when I was rude to people. That was a mistake on my part. But, I mean, you see Jesus glorified, the glorified Jesus. And then you you read, like, Daniel, I think it's Daniel 9... Uh, or 11, somewhere Daniel 9, 10, or 11 in there where he appears and, and he's described the same way as he is in Revelation 1. And I'm like, okay, so most of the time Jesus has a sword coming out of his mouth. There was only a 33 and a half year period where Jesus was petting lambs. Most of the time his eyes are burning, his hair is white as wool, his body is glaring like the sun. That's what he's like most of the time. But for 33 and a half years, you get the Gospels. And and both are equally true. And you need to understand Jesus uh, in order to behold him. You got that? Okay, awesome. Um, So, moving on through this passage in uh, Matthew. So, the disciple wants to be like the teacher. So, therefore, do not fear them. Matthew's referring back to just... Three verses earlier, it wasn't on the screen because it wasn't part of this subheading in the NASB, but Jesus had just been telling them not to worry about being persecuted. In in verse 23, which we didn't read and it wasn't on the screen, he was just telling them, don't worry about being persecuted. So he says, therefore, do not fear them. So I think he's referring back to those people that are going to persecute you. Do not fear them. There's nothing concealed that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. But I tell you in darkness, speak in the light. What you hear whispered in your ear, proclaim upon the rooftops. Do not fear those who kill kill the body but are unable to kill the soul. Rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. All right, let me summarize that by saying, number two, quality of discipleship. Fear God, not man. Uh, You were programmed, Jesus created you to feel fear. Fear is a normal human emotion and it has its place. We just often misdirect it. Uh, You can't fear God and man at the same time. And normally if you suffer from the fear of man, it's because you don't enjoy the fear of God. Because once you've grasped the fear of God, man is really not that intimidating anymore. And that, that's like the antidote right there. I mean, if you suffer from the fear of man, so what does that feel like when you constantly care what people think about you? Uh, I call it being self-conscious. Uh, I don't want to be totally una- self-unaware, but I, I don't want to be self-conscious where I, oh, is this, did I say that right? And oh, how did, I mean, I, I talk for a living. So when I listen to myself on our church website, oh my gosh, I'm just like beating myself up. You know, Self-conscious is like, did I say this thing right? I hope they didn't take it the wrong way. Oh, I can't believe I had food in my teeth the whole time. And, you know, was this interaction with my boss okay? And you just like worry and worry and worry about how you perceive. That's That's a consequence of the fear of man. Or that you never say what you really need to say or really should say, because you're afraid of how people are going to respond. Uh, When you tiptoe and people please and walk on eggshells, those are all symptoms of the fear of man. So the fear of man is very prevalent in our society. It's part of the whole uh, political correct, don't offend anyone thing. That's the fear of man. The fear of God, I think, could, could... benefit from a little uh, restoration within the church that the ch- and our society, but I'm mostly concerned about the church because I think the society lost it because the church lost it. But if the church would return to a biblical fear of God, um, we would not suffer from the fear of man. You got that? Understand what I'm saying? If we truly feared God, and I don't mean that we should walk around afraid that he's going to squash us at any moment. I don't think it'd be bad if we knew that he could, but knowing that he 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 is not going to squash you at any moment because Jesus was squashed, that's a technical term, on our behalf. I mean, Jesus what Jesus suffered was so that we wouldn't have to suffer it. So, if you think Jesus or God is like waiting to crush you, you might need to just reread the end of the Gospels where Jesus was on the cross. But you need to know that he could, not that he's gonna, but that he could, and that it's okay to at times tremble in God's presence. There's a phrase in Latin, mysterium tremendum. And it's the, it's the idea that God is so gigantic and your brain can't even wrap itself around him that you just kind of shake in awe. Mysterium tremendum. And, yeah, get it tattooed on your lower back. Uh, Mysterium tremendum. The idea that God is so vast, so mysterious, that you just kind of shake. That's the fear of God. Uh, So understanding how big he is, how powerful he is, how majestic he is, how mysterious he is in a way that causes you to have awe is the fear of God. And if you want to have high-quality discipleship, you want the fear of God, not the fear of man. And as you grow in the fear of God, you'll decrease in the fear of man. right? Because when you conquer your fears, you don't, you don't fear the things anymore. Right? Um, You know, that roller coaster when you're a kid that terrifies you. And then you ride it, and you're like, no, that wasn't that bad. Uh, Or like, if you played sports, there's... I played against... uh, I played football as well, so just these big kids that I was always afraid of. And then you find out, well, they're not really that bad, so then I'm not afraid of them. Or it's like, well, I already played against someone that's like two feet taller than them, so I'm not really nervous about this person. When you... When you see how glorious God is, there's not much to be impressed with after that, right? So that's the fear of God and the fear of man. And the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. If you haven't grasped that, you're not going to go far as far as developing wisdom and gaining revelation. Third thing, uh, in the last couple of verses here, (coughs) verses 29 and 30 and 31, are not two sparrows sold for a cent, and yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father? But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. So do not fear, you're more valuable than many sparrows. This is important because the last thing Jesus does, after he explains uh, the need to aspire to be like your, like your teacher and also to fear God and not man, he, he seals the whole teaching up With telling them about their worth and how valuable they are to God. You know, Jesus says that God takes care of the sparrows. He will not let even a sparrow die without the Father uh, knowing that, right? And then he says that you're worth more than many sparrows. Now, husbands, I would not recommend putting that on your anniversary card. You're worth more than many small birds. But I think Jesus is speaking poetically here, and I think Jesus chose his words intentionally. In verse 30, the very hairs of your head are all numbered. I think that's like a poetic image that I also think is literal, but it's a poetic image because how many? who of us really knows how many hairs are on our head, right? Everybody here's got a full head of hair, so I can make some bald jokes. All right. I mean, to, to really, that idea of that God knows how many hairs are on your head. I think it's poetic imagery to, to get the point across that he knows everything about you. But I also think it's literal that he really does know how many hairs are on your head. And the point he's trying to convey is he loves you. You know how much time it would take to figure that out? Probably not much for God, but for us it would take forever, right? And uh, that every single one of them has a number, and that not one of them falls without him knowing it. And then he goes up, you know, so he says that we're worth more than many sparrows, and do not fear. He is establishing, at the, at the end of this teaching about discipleship, how valuable his disciples are to him. the the level of worth that you have to God is high. And you need to know that in this situation where Jesus is the teacher and we are the disciples, Jesus is the kind of teacher who values his disciples. Now normally, we would be talking about how the disciples should value the teacher, right? And that's true, and the disciples should value their teacher, Jesus. But there is a reciprocal relationship there where Jesus also values his disciples. In fact, we know that Jesus valued his disciples more than they valued him. That's probably still true. And you need to know how much you're worth to God. Let me explain it a little bit. You, at one point in your life, had separation from God. And God was so unhappy with that situation that he chose to offer Jesus, his son, and uh, endure separation from Jesus to restore relationship with you. I, I I could be wrong. I don't think I am here. But you are as valuable to God as Jesus was to God. I'm not saying you're as good as Jesus. I'm not saying that you're as important in the big scheme as Jesus. But God endured three days of separation from Jesus to restore you back to Him. The value you have, I mean, the, think about the price that was set on you. Like right now, Luis and Melissa are selling a bunch of their furniture. I was over at their house yesterday. Everything had a price tag on it. I feel like it was a trick. The whole party was a trick. To get people to walk through their house and buy their furniture. I'm just kidding. But how how did that price get set? Because someone someone set a value. This is what it's worth to me. This is what I'd be willing to part with. $35 or $50, whatever, in order to to get this, or I'd be willing to part with this piece of furniture in exchange for this amount of money. Someone has to set the price for something, right? So ultimately, God set the price for you, how much you're worth. And that price was equal value to his son. If that's hard for you to believe, that's okay. It's hard for me to believe sometimes, but I I don't have any other explanation for why he offered Jesus on our behalf. I don't think he overpaid. He could have done animals or money or penance, but he didn't. He set the price on us, set our price at equal to His Son. Now again, I'm not saying that you and I are Jesus. I'm not saying that we're perfect. I'm not saying we're deity or anything like that. But I am saying that you are incredibly valuable to God. If there was a lesser price that could have been paid, he probably would have paid it. But apparently there wasn't. And he set the price. So I think understanding your value and your identity in Christ uh, is essential to discipleship. Otherwise, your discipleship is just you doing stuff to make God happy, rather than you saying, I am a disciple, it's who I am, and so disciples do this, and so I'm going to do it. So I want to, we have a couple more things to cover, but I want to challenge you to make a determination today, are you a disciple or are you not? Uh, There's other things that I guess you could be. Maybe you're just like a fan. I'm a a fan of Jesus. He's cool. Well, there's probably other belief systems that might fit better for you that I would not agree with. Um, But decide today whether your identity is as a disciple. Are you a disciple? Are Are you someone who's just investigating? Like, I'm not really sure about Jesus, but I'm interested right now. I want to see what he's all about. Or are you a disciple? And that's something for you to determine. I will speak for myself. I am a disciple. I'm a pretty messed up one, and I have a long way to go, but I am a disciple of Jesus, and the rest of my life will be marked uh, by that. So I want to challenge you to do that. Second, I want to... I want to define what a mature disciple looks like, because if you don't have a a definition of what a mature disciple looks like, you will probably wander around for years, not knowing really where you're supposed, supposed to go in this. This is my personal definition. If you don't like it, you can toss it, but I think it's biblical. A mature disciple of Jesus Christ can feed themselves and feed others spiritually. So here's what I mean by that. You need to, if you're a disciple of Jesus, you need to be able to sp- feed yourself spiritually. Not just come on Sunday morning and hear a sermon and try to survive off that in the next six and a half days. But you need to know how to feed yourself. You need to know how to study the Bible. You need to know how to pray. You need to know how to come into God's presence without Gary or Rachel or Ruby up here. You need to know how to encounter God. You need to know how to feed yourself. There is no legitimate opportunity for a mature Christian to go to a church and say I just don't feel fed you can say other stuff but if you're not being fed that's on you even sheep, actual real sheep feed themselves the shepherd doesn't go pick up some grass and put it in their mouth he just says there's some grass eat it or I'll hit you (laughs) with the Ken Griffey Jr. bat. you know The ability to feed yourself. So that's something to shoot for right there. If you don't know how to feed yourself spiritually, make that the next thing on your agenda. I need to learn how to do that. I need to know how to read the Bible and get something out of it. I need to know how to pray and feel like God is listening. I need to know how to worship without someone right in front of me telling me what to do, without someone else's words up on a screen. I need to know how to do those things. Then... Once you can feed yourself, learn how to feed others. And I'll just say, you'll never get done with that. You, know, you, you might get to a point, you're like, yeah, I can feed myself pretty well now. What's next? Feed others? You will never get tired of that. Well, you might get tired of it, but you'll never run out of opportunities there. There'll always be opportunities to feed others. So a mature disciple of Jesus Christ is able to feed themselves and feed others spiritually. You got that? Great. Okay, now, uh, I have a couple things that I want to show you. This is going to probably feel redundant like you get this all the time, like I'm trying to brainwash you. Oh, there are the points. Whoops. Uh, but we have a couple things that we are going to use at Tri- True Vine. five things in particular, to measure the quality of our discipleship. Okay, There are, there are five values, which you guys have probably heard quite a bit lately. You're going to hear more. Because starting next week, we're going to do a sermon series. It's going to be about six or seven weeks long on our church's vision and values. We have them up uh, behind, uh, back here on the, this, this uh, banner, our church's five values. But I want to have them up on the screen, um, so I'm going to go through these. So does anyone here work in a field that would, you could consider quality control at your job? Okay, quality control would be kind of like, uh, like if your company produces paper. Quality control would be the person who makes sure that the paper that you're printing out is the right paper and that it doesn't have mistakes and, and it's not torn or printed on. Uh, so if you worked in a restaurant or a food factory, you're making sure that the food that you're making is coming out in the right form and the right ingredients. I would love to work in quality control in a restaurant, actually. Get to taste a little bit of everything. These values are essentially our quality control for discipleship. These are the kind of disciples we want to make at True Vine will value these five things. All right, so the living and active Word of God, Spirit-led prayer, anointed worship, authentic relationships, and kingdom growth multiplication. I'm not going to teach on these five things right now. The next five weeks will be me doing that. Uh, and Shay, Shay's actually going to jump into one of them. No, you're going to do the fourfold gospel, right? Okay. But these are our five values. These are unique to us. Now, I'm not—we're not the only church that values these things. But as far we didn't steal this from anyone. This is in house, at least the way it's worded and put together. These are the five things that we value, and I think that if we cover all five of these well, this year of fullness thing is going to go very well for us. And I would say that first and foremost, they're values, but secondly, they're practices. And I want to challenge you over the next five to six weeks to take these values and make them habits in your life. If you can do every single, if you can do every single one of these once a week, work it into your life once a week, or I'm in the Bible, or I'm praying, or I'm worshiping. Once you've established that, then try to fit every single one in every day. But I, I don't, every day might overwhelm some of you. So let's start with once a week. And once you've established that and you have that, let's try every day to have all of these. And then once you've done that, try to help other people walk in these five things. You got that? This is our quality control for discipleship here. If your discipleship is lacking in any of these five areas, then we want to fill that area up this year. All right? And... Uh, So, I gave you some very practical stuff here, and I know if you're like me, you might want to run home and just get to work. Before we do that, and I'm I'm for getting to work, before we do that, though, we need the proper power to accomplish this, because if you just try hard... You will not succeed. And then you'll just feel guilty about not succeeding. So we kind of have this two-pronged approach. You need the the power and the resources available to to accomplish this. So I want to do two things. First, we have communion here. uh, The bread and the cup. And I, I, I still am convinced that something... Communion is unique. Communion, baptism... Even the washing of feet are unique hands on things that Jesus gave us to point us to the gospel. You know, we're actually going to eat bread and dip it in grape juice. You're going to taste it. You might even smell it. You're certainly going to feel it. That's a tactile way to remind yourself of Jesus' death. Because he said, when you do this, you'll proclaim. The Lord's death until he comes. Or Paul wrote that in 1 Corinthians 11. So as we do this, this is a tactile, hands-on way of connecting with Jesus' death, which established your value as a person and as a disciple. I think there's a unique grace that takes place when you participate in it. That I think that if you didn't do it, you would have missed something. Okay, I'm not saying that you wouldn't be saved or anything, but I think that there's something... There's, there's a connection to God that we can experience through this. Same as baptism. and I would, I would say the other thing he left us is actually the washing of feet, which we don't do very often. It's too cold for that. But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask you to come up, but also, while you're doing this, I want to challenge you to ask the Holy Spirit to fill you. Uh, because, again, I doubt that when times get tough, you're going to be like, oh, I remember that time on October 18th when we took communion. That's probably not going to sustain you during a challenging season. The Holy Spirit, though, will sustain you during a challenging season. He's a person. The Holy Spirit is not a thing. He's a person. He's a he. You know, the Bible never refers to the Holy Spirit as it. In fact, can I just little side note right now? This is I'm not going to preach a whole sermon on this. Let's make sure that we use the right terminology about the Holy Spirit. It's not an it. It's a, it's a he. And I don't think the Holy Spirit's necessarily a, a male, but all the pronouns in the Bible are he, he's a person. Okay? Uh, he is not the force from Star Wars. He is not like energy that came out of He-Man's sword. In He-Man. you know, he, is not a, he is not some impersonal power that zaps you the Holy Spirit is a person. Now, person is not the same thing as human.? Okay? Ain't like an angel. An angel, open your mind here. An angel is a person, but an angel is not a human. And most of us Americans would be better we, we need to understand that there's, person and human are not synonymous. Okay? So to have a personality, so God is a person. We talk about the person of God. God is a person. God is not a human, except for in Jesus, he became a human. You got that? So when we talk about the Holy Spirit, let's talk about the person of the Holy Spirit, not that the thing, it. Let's say he, or just call it the Holy Spirit. Okay, that was an unplanned doctrinal lesson there. Uh, Gary, are you here to lead us in worship? Okay, or did Brandon kick you out? Okay, well, I'm glad you're back. Gary's going to just play guitar for us for a little bit, and I'm going to ask you guys to come up. I'm going to pray over the elements, but I'm going to ask you to come up, and you know I think there's too many of us here to make a one-size-fits-all, but when you get back to your seat, or if you stay up front, ask the Holy Spirit to fill you. Because this, this next year, and you guys know our churches, we're in a transition right now. We don't need anyone doing anything with their own strength. Man, that screws everything up. We need people that are filled with the Holy Spirit, that are listening to the Holy Spirit. And, uh, I mean, that's what every church needs, really. No matter how good or big or vibrant they are, you, cannot, you can always benefit from more people that are filled with the Holy Spirit. So, Lord, thank you for providing this bread and this grape juice. But more importantly, thank you for providing your Son... And thank you for providing the Holy Spirit. You have given us everything we need for life and godliness. So, Lord, I pray that as we, in obedience, participate in the Lord's Supper, and also as we submit ourselves to the filling of the Holy Spirit, that you would come and empower us for a new thing and a new season, Lord, that we would go deeper in our discipleship, that we would put down roots that draw from you and from your power, Jesus. I bless the bread and the cup, We proclaim your death until you come. and I pray that, Jesus, in your name. Amen. One more thing I just want to add. Jesus offered this to his two disciples, to his disciples. If you're not sure yet that you're ready for this discipleship thing, I would say, you know, maybe you need to take a little bit of time and think about it. We'll have communion next month and maybe... Maybe next month might be better for you. But uh, this was offered initially by Jesus to his followers. So if you consider yourself a follower of Jesus, this is for you. And I want to invite you to come up and take it. So as you're ready, come on up. also the Holy Spirit would fill us corporately as a church. I'm going to lump True Vine with Sonoma into this as well. But if you wouldn't mind putting your arms out, uh, I'm just going to pray that there was a corporate filling of the Holy Spirit in the Bible in Acts 2. And there's an individual filling, but I think we want both. So Holy Spirit, would you come fill us as a church? Would you fill True Vine we want you, and we have lived at times out of alignment with you. We have quenched the Spirit at times, we have grieved the Holy Spirit at times. Jesus, would you send the Holy Spirit to fill us as a church uh, across the board. I know that there are areas of sin, I know that there's areas of dis- disobedience. Uh, our individual lives, Uh, I pray that you would convict us of those and help us correct those and bring them to submission to you. Uh, We confess our need for you, Holy Spirit, that without you, we will stumble along blindly. As you open up our souls and heal our hearts, would you fill those areas?